Hi, I'm Lindsay Pugh. And I'm Joe Nesterbrook. Welcome to Woman in Revolt podcast. Today, we're really excited because, as we have alluded to in the past, we have a special guest on with us today. And we're going to be discussing Claire Denis' polarizing erotic horror film, Trouble Every Day with Her. So please welcome Dr. Kate Robertson. She is a film writer, an art historian, and just an all-around cool person who knows a lot about film. Hi, I am so thrilled to be here. I'm an Australian. I live in New York. I trained as an art historian before transitioning to working more on film. Uh, I regularly present at conferences and film festivals on my work, such as Final Girls Berlin, Cine Access in the UK, Axe Wound, and Brooklyn Horror, where I'm a features judge this week, actually. I've written for publications such as The Atlantic, ID, Rumorg, Marie Claire, Senses of Cinema, and I've had more academic things published as well, uh, including in the recent edited volumes, Bloody Women, Women Directors of Horror, and Screening the Art World. I am also the author of two of my own books, one which is on art history, which is Identity, Community and Australian Artists, 1819 to 1914, and what we'll be talking about today, A Devil's Advocates edition of Trouble Every Day, which is a standalone monograph just on that film by Claire Neat. Yeah, and so I should say that I know Kate through Final Girls Berlin. I actually interviewed her at some point in time. Maybe it was like 2019. So I will link that in the show notes so you can check out our interview with her and learn more about Kate. And in that interview, she had mentioned to me that she had a book that would be coming out about trouble every day. And this is a film that has always just really piqued my interest, but I had never done a proper deep dive into it. And so we figured now would be a good time to really use Kate's expertise as a jumping off point and to try to unpack this really weird fucking movie. Kate, we are so thrilled to have you here. I just have to say, before we dive in, I enjoyed your book, Trouble Every Day, so much. Everybody go get watch the film, get this book. You need it. Yes, if you are going to watch this film and you really want to unpack all the layers of it, Kate's book will really help you do that. She goes into pretty much every aspect of it. There's some information about Claire Denis, there's information about the background and the production aspects of the film, and then a really deep analysis, almost not really scene by scene, but almost scene by scene, right, Kate, where you go through and you really break each down and tie them together. And then you also bring in your art history background, which is fascinating and adds a whole other layer to the film and really made me appreciate it a lot more. Yeah, the book does have a little bit of everything. <laughs> so one chapter is just a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown, which I think really helped me understand the film. So that was sort of a process um, for me. But one of the most interesting things I found in criticism of the film, of which there's a lot and I'm sure we'll talk about, is people like saying that nothing happens. So by doing a full chapter on scene breakdowns, it makes it really clear that there is a lot happening all the time in this film. And it also helps you puzzle out what is happening because, uh, again, we'll talk about this, but there are so many gaps in this narrative. And Joe, I know that we were just talking about this before we started recording and 
Joe was saying that's one of the things that she really likes about Claire Denis and finds fascinating about her, how she leaves a lot for you to puzzle out and come to your own conclusions about. Like she's not a very prescriptive filmmaker where you really finish a film and you feel like you know exactly what her point of view is. Exactly. Let me just first of all say that this was my first Claire Denis film, Trouble Every Day. A lot of people may think, wow, that was really one hell of a way to be introduced to her. But, and that is true. When I first saw the film, I'm like, what the heck? Then I read Kate's wonderful book. It intrigued me. I watched the film again and really had such a better appreciation of what she did in this film. And it just led me down a rabbit hole. I seriously watched like six other Claire Denis films after this. (laughs) And the whole time it was so interesting weaving in the connections, weaving in the story. I find, and I do believe, Kate, this is in your book where I'm just paraphrasing here. It talks about there's so much meaning in the gaps. And the gaps are where you find the meaning. So where it doesn't seem like much is going on, there's so much going on. And I feel like Claire Denis gives us the ability to think, and she believes that we can think for ourselves. It's intriguing to me when I go to look for the answers that's not spoon-fed to me. So I just found it absolutely fascinating and ended up loving every film that I saw from her. And Kate, maybe could you just tell us why did you decide to write this book on Trouble Every Day? And maybe just a little bit about how it fits in with your appreciation of Claire Denis' body of work. So when I was talking with the editor of Devil's Advocates, which is actually published now through Liverpool University Press, We were talking about some films that I would like to write a book on. And for better or worse, a lot of them were already commissioned. So we we were limited that way. Uh, And I really thought that my art background was something that I should be focusing on. So this just seemed like a really good choice for me. Also, I've been working for uh, (laughs) about a decade on a book about women cannibals on screen. So this was sort of adjacent. I, you know, thought about the film a lot um, in context of of that wider book. So it it kind of worked as a a side project or major distraction, (laughs) maybe both. That's awesome. What are, can you tell us about some of the other films that you're looking at for the Female Cannibals book? Oh, I could talk about that a lot. Um, But yeah, it's a a pretty wide ranging book, which I, I really hope I can just finish up and get done. But that covers things like ginger snaps and raw, you know, young women hungry for for life, I suppose. And then there's quite a few international films. Dumplings from South Korea, for instance. I have, yeah, a pretty giant film. <laughs> Every time I bring that up, everyone just asks, cool. so when is that one out? So, um, yeah, hopefully I can get it finished. Yeah, there's something about female cannibalism that appeals to me for some weird reason. I'm I'm ready to read about it. Yeah, it's not that weird, really. I think that it is because cannibalism is, I mean, firstly, it's been pretty 
popular over the last few years, for lack of a better word. Um, and my Atlantic article that where I sort of started talking very publicly rather than just in an academic context about why I was writing this book happened to come out when Raw was just released in the US. So it had been doing the festival circuit for about a year. And the Santa Clarita Diet with Drew Barrymore came out on Netflix with, you know, a suburban, sweet, hungry cannibal mom <laughs> and um the lure which is one of my favorite films with our cannibal mermaids came out so that was sort of all happening in 2017 so since then i think there's been more and more like interest in it but just at like a really deep biological level i think we understand that one cannibalism is very very wrong but two it, it's a really really easy metaphor for a lot of things so a lot of the time these cannibal movies will have you know a very strong connection to sex for instance so you can see this this sort of yeah metaphor works for a lot of people because it elicits a lot of emotions because as I said we feel like deep deep down this is a really bad thing <laughs> we should not be doing this yeah that's true I just I was telling Joe that I I watched uh in my skin last night and to me that is maybe maybe the female cannibal film that connects deepest with me but that I have the hardest time watching like that was my second watch of it and it is so viscerally disgusting and there's so much gore and it's just a really hard film to watch but it is so deeply meaningful and I feel like Marina Devan is doing so many things but uh, yeah it's interesting because that that genre spans a lot of different or I don't know, would you call it that that subgenre, that collection of films spans different genres like you're talking about the Drew Barrymore show, which is a comedy, right? So there are all these kind of different, they're not all just like straight horror. No, absolutely not. And most of the films I'm looking at probably wouldn't fit into what most people think of as, you know, a straight horror genre film. But yeah, In My Skin is included in the book. And I agree with you, Lindsay. It's it's a hard watch, but it's a hard watch, I think, because it really makes you think about your relationship with your body or, you know, my relationship with my body. And that's a, that's a difficult thing for a lot of people. A lot of people don't have that strong connection or their connection's too strong. Or, you know, there are so many different ways you can experience yourself. And this is her semi-autobiographical or very much draws from her life. This study, I guess, of what it means to like truly understand yourself. In a thought, it was it was making me think, or maybe somebody wrote, and I it came to mind because of that. But it was something about how you know when you see women hurting themselves on screen, the response as an audience member is to stop them or to turn away. And I think you feel some of that for Beatrice Dahl's character in Trouble Every Day as well. This this desire to stop her from hurting herself, and you see it in how her husband treats her as well. So I thought, yeah, there were some nice parallels there in just the the response to the action on screen. Yeah, I think that quite connected those films and they did come out, you know, around the same time and they loosely fit into this new French extremity genre. But yeah, I think you're right that both of them had these women characters who were going through something that is biological as well. Neither of them really 
can help what they're doing or there there is agency, but it seems like something that just has to happen. And it's very much about their relationship again with the, with their bodies. And then I guess how that relates to the world outside them. Yeah, deeply fascinating. Just watching watching women kind of unravel, but not in a way where they are turning their destruction outward, they're turning it inward. I don't know, Joe, you've got to, we'll find a way for you to watch that one because it, it will, it will deeply disgust you, but you will love it, I think. Yes, yes. I, like I said, I did see a five minute clip, a pretty graphic one that I found online and I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, I have, I want to see this movie and I don't want to see this movie, but I want to see it more than I don't want to. So I definitely want to check that one out. Well, at this point, I feel like we should probably give some kind of synopsis of Trouble Every Day. I hate doing these because I I write them out and then I find it so hard to like not just read what I wrote. But all right. So the movie we're talking about, Trouble Every Day, if you need a reminder, it's a 2001 film. It's co-written by Claire Denis and Jean-Paul Fargo, who she co-writes, I think, all or most of her films with. And then Denis has directed it. It follows the intersecting stories of two different couples, Leo, played by Alex Discas, I'm probably saying that wrong, and Corey, played by Beatrice Dahl, uh, they're the Seminoles, and then we have the Browns, and they are Shane, played by Vincent Gallo, and June, played by Trisha Vesey. So it's these two different couples, and they know each other, sort of. Shane and Leo, we find, previously met on some kind of a research expedition to the jungle where they were doing something with plants, searching for some kind of plant that would lead to a breakthrough in neurobiology. So Leo was sort of the leader of this expedition, and then Shane was there with a pharmaceutical company in the U.S., So when the film begins, you see the Browns on their honeymoon in Paris, but you eventually learn that they're really there so that Shane can find Leo. Then you find out that Shane was infected with some kind of disease on their expedition, maybe, or sometime around the expedition, and that Leo's wife, Corey, who is also on the expedition, is also infected with this same disease. And Leo is doing research to try to figure out how to find a cure or to make it better. And you don't find out a lot of details about the disease, but you find out that it creates this hunger in the host that compels them to fuck and murder and consume people. And it gets progressively worse over time. So eventually in the film, Shane does find the Seminole house, but Leo isn't there. It's just Corey, and she is alone. She's covered in blood, and she's wandering around in a daze. So I've kind of made this film sound like it is the type of thing that is linear and very straightforward, but it's really not a very super plot-driven film. Uh, Motivations aren't really spelled out for the viewer, It brings up a lot of different questions and some story threads and never really quite tells you everything that you need to know. As Joe and Kate were saying, it it does that thing where it gives you gaps and all of the meaning is found in those gaps. So I would say it's a film that is more about feelings, 
big overarching themes and fleeting impressions. And I don't know, Joe or Kate, if you have anything to add to that. I do believe that you are correct. I do believe that there are some very important overarching themes, which once again, Kate's book helped me to realize. I think upon first watch, I was just so shocked by everything and trying to figure out what was going on and what had happened that I really missed a lot of that. I was able, after reading the book, going into the second watch of this film, to really see that this goes so much beyond, I would say, someone that's been infected with with a virus. Or it just, to me, it really went down to just the animalistic core of being a human being and what happens when either you allow yourself or circumstances allow you to slide down that slippery slope that everyone costs you your whole life. Watch out, it's a slippery slope. It seems to me that this shows us what happens when someone slides down that slope. And I just found that fascinating. And I also found myself turning this inward to myself, exploring, you know, what would I do in this situation? How would I react? Would I cover up murders? Would I be able to murder? It it just, it took me on a, a journey. So that was just kind of my impression of it. And Kate, how how did you feel the first time you watched this? And how do you feel like your impressions have changed as you've written this book? So I watched this many years ago. That was a long time after its initial release. And I remember thinking that it was really challenging. I really remembered the locker room scene. I knew there was more to it. There was a female cannibal. But I didn't really want to watch it again. And then when I was thinking about what to write a book about, a whole book about, this feeling was really the reason why I ended up deciding this book over uh, over others. It's really uncomfortable, but it's something that lingers for years. And a lot of people I speak to about the film haven't seen it for a long time, but they remember the feeling they got from watching it. And I think that there are not many films that are that effective, really. And as you said, Lindsay, it's it is the kind of film that's very difficult to watch. And um, I had to watch this a lot of times. So I think I have a very different relationship with it now than I did at the start. I've perhaps overwatched it uh, or extricated sort of single images or ideas rather than the overall impression of the, the film that I used to have. Yeah, it's interesting how that happens when you really dig into a film. That's happened to me before where like I can't even remember what the experience of watching it and not picking apart every little thing is like. It's like you can't go back to it once you've once you've done the scene by scene analysis and you feel like you you hit it at every beat and you've pulled apart every single layer that you can. It's it's weird. It's like it loses some of the initial power or or feeling that it Mm. once had. Exactly. Yeah, Kate, I was just curious. You talked about your first experience of seeing it, and I know it's probably hard to remember since it was such a long time ago, but why do you think when Trouble Every Day came out, why do you think so many people did dislike it? That I can talk about. I think there's a few reasons, and one of it is, one is just timing, honestly. It came out after Boutrevai, which is still one of Denise, more acclaimed films, people watch it for the first time, for the 10th time, and they just love it. 
It's beautifully made. It has a very strong story. I think for a lot of people, this is Denis' standout film. And people that came to find Denis and her work from this were not expecting Trouble Every Day as her next film. And I think that that really put it in a difficult position because it's definitely very much drawing from the horror genre which is still a little bit, not as much as it used to be, but considered, I guess, um, you know, a bit lowbrow compared to highbrow. I also think that it's the kind of film that is very difficult to locate in a genre. I mentioned, you know, draws from horror, but it's not really a horror film. It kind of crosses genres in a way that makes it difficult to situate. And that makes it difficult for people to place in a lineage or to classify and then think about in relation to other things. And I do think that as well, like we talked about already, it's a film with a lot of gaps and a lot of people do not like gaps in their films. They want something that's a little less opaque, which is a word, Lindsay, you've used and I think is perfect for this film. It it, it honestly is quite opaque and it gives you these these gaps and it gives you space as if you were to make meanings and connections, which frustrates a lot of people. I think people that watch this as a horror film would be frustrated by what they see as sort of this really slow paced uh, narrative. There's a lack of gore right till the end. And then the kind of gore that we have is not what you would see in a lot of horror films. It's performed without any theatricality and it's really, truly, deeply awful. And then I think people that went to it as an art film saw it as really distasteful. I actually read a lot of the reviews that came out, especially in the US when it got its release in 2002. It was not well received and there were some incredibly rude reviews. It was called confused, incoherent, silly, boring, pretentious overlong, underwritten, a flop. Someone for the Austin Chronicle wrote that any fainting among viewers of trouble every day is more likely to derive from boredom rather than the sight of horror. So (laughs) not very, very well liked at all. I wonder how many of those, how many of those reviews were written by men? (laughs) Yeah. Almost all of them on my list. Shocking. (laughs) There wasn't any car chases, so... I mean, that just like that goes to show how powerful critics are in making or breaking an audience's perception to a film, and especially a film like this one coming from what I would consider to be like a prestige filmmaker. And it's, do you feel like it's getting a resurgence at all? Is, or is there like a reappraisal? Are we like on the precipice of that happening where people are revisiting and appreciating this film on a deeper level, do you think? I definitely think that started happening maybe about 10 years ago-ish. I think when people started having, people, sorry, outside of France had increasing interest in new French extremity, which is, like I said, a loose sort of subgenre that this fits into. I think a big change as well was access to films in general. So streaming or having, you know, region-free DVDs or even just being able to order DVDs from overseas, access became really a big deal when it comes to you getting films that might not turn up in your local video store which was definitely something I experienced growing up. My local video store did not have a lot of non-English language films. I definitely would not have found this there. But I think even people that really wanted to see it, and I'm talking 
specifically from my context in Australia, really had a hard time unless you went to the Melbourne Film Festival to see it, which I think it only made it there a couple of years after it came out, maybe 04 or something like that. It's yeah, really difficult. You just wait and hope for a DVD for your region and then you know, order it and wait a month for it to come if it arrives. So I do think streaming made a really big difference here. Wow. Yeah, I feel like I remember something about the film getting a weird release too, even, even considering the time. Was there something where it just took a really long time to get international distribution or was it placed on any like lists that made it difficult for it to get it i mean i i'm thinking like video nasties were there any like censorship type issues that came up not that i could find it just seemed like one of those films that was low budget independent film from france by yes an acclaimed director but i mean i guess there just wasn't necessarily the interest but i i can't speak to what it was like accessing it in you know say france or in the US even, I'm sure, you know, there was access. I just don't think it was a film that people chose to see. And maybe the reviews played a big part in that. If they were across the board pretty negative, it wouldn't have been easy to get distribution for it. But I think a lot of films struggle with distribution. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like, (laughs) why would you want to distribute it internationally if everyone international who's seeing it is saying, we hate it, (laughs) don't see it? It seems to me, and Kate, I know you mentioned this in your book, that this film really was ahead of its time. Maybe if it had come out 10 years later, with all these different circumstances, but also just with the ability of people to understand what she was trying to say, it almost seems like it was a groundbreaking film that inspired a lot of other films many years later. Yeah, I really do think it would have found its audience. I don't know, maybe even five years ago, five, ten years ago, a lot more easily. I think there are definitely people that see it for the first time and are really, really impressed and track down other films by Denis to watch because it is a film that turns up a lot in uh, various lists, things like movies with killer women or uh, horror films you haven't seen or extreme horror films something like that so it it just appears pretty frequently actually so I think it's still finding new audiences 20 years after its release which is quite impressive the mark of a good film <laughs> yeah I mean it it got me thinking like Raw had such a good reception like it won awards that came out in 2016 were there other films you can think of that are in the same vein as this one, but that came out a little bit later and had a much better reception. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Was it Titan? Yeah, that one definitely did. That came out even after Raw. I think like, yeah, Julia Ducourneau has gotten pretty, I mean, like I know Titan was not as well received as Raw, but she is a very liked filmmaker, I would say, internationally, and she does a lot of the same things as Claire Denis, where the story is never explicitly spelled out for you. It's, again, sort of meaning in, in the gaps, meaning in the silence, meaning in what she doesn't say. So it's been interesting to watch her and then I think even some of, some of the other younger French filmmakers getting much better reception for what are these kind of like cross-genre movies that are complicated and hard to watch and sometimes 
gruesome and opaque. I'm curious, Kate, like what do you look for when you watch a movie? If you're just trying to watch a movie that you know you will or you think you will really connect with, are there any things that you're looking for in particular? Like for me, it's it's really like character-driven movies. That's kind of what I end up gravitating toward, what ends up getting its hooks into me the most. And I think that's why I struggle with trouble every day because the characters are so hard to describe because you really don't know very much about them at all. They feel like they feel like vessels for ideas more than they do real people. So yeah, I guess just what what do you look for in a film typically and then what do you maybe what do you get from trouble every day that you find intriguing? What I look for in a film uh, that definitely differs a lot. I watch a lot of different films from many different genres and I think there are different films for different times. I do really like a good character driven film but and I'm aware that this is actually a fault. I will forgive a lot in a film that looks really good. You give me a good aesthetic, give me an amazing cinematographer and I will absolutely forgive plot holes or narrative lapses. (laughs) Yeah, same for me. If it looks pretty, I will. I'll forgive almost everything, <laughs> depending. That is definitely my my overwhelming realization. Watching an incredible amount of films every year, more and more as the years go on, that is what often sticks in my mind is just the um, aesthetic, or sometimes even the vibe. Um, I am about to do a paper on a girl walks home alone at night mm. next week, so I got to rewatch that. And I was just so impressed watching it for, I don't know, maybe the sixth time or something, that it's got this beautiful look. It's got this great narrative with this wonderful kind of coming of age type romance. But the soundtrack is just so incredible as well. And everything about it to me is just vibe. I just love watching that film. There are not many films I know off the top of my head that I will really enjoy sitting down to watch yeah no i agree with you totally about a girl walks home alone at night like even though it's not it's like abandoned streets and not much going on it's just something about it feels like you'd want to be there experiencing it and then that that uh scene where she puts on the record and she's sort of like dancing in her room like they're just that movie is one where it's just beautiful and evocative and that's what i remember about it absolutely and kate that that what you said about a vibe i do believe that attracts me to movies so many times if i can just see a little bit of a trailer or hear something about it and i instantly just have this vibe with it and honestly also i'm always drawn if i see that it's a woman-directed or woman-written film, I'm instantly intrigued because I know there's going to be something great in there for me. I absolutely agree. That is something that I more and more will do is I will look for something that's directed by women or also women-led, written by women. I think that my list of films that I would like to watch is overwhelming honestly it is ever expanding hundreds and hundreds of pages long 
And I feel like if I have to choose something, that is actually quite important for me to prioritize. One thing that you brought up in the book that I thought was interesting, you were talking about how Claire Denis kind of rails against this idea of being described as a woman director. And I understand why, but do you think there is something that she specifically brings being a woman director, woman co-writer to this film that you maybe would not get if a man was behind it? I think that she does, because I think that it's very hard, if not impossible, to escape your own context. So, I mean, I even mentioned before I'm talking about reviews and I throw in that, okay, so I was in Australia at the time. That definitely colors my experience of looking for or sourcing films. So I think that saying that being a woman doesn't change the way that you make a film is is difficult. I understand not wanting the label. I think that they're two separate things, really. But I do think that being a woman makes her writing a certain way. She's obviously coming from a very specific perspective. She's probably been a woman standing at a hotel desk waiting to be served by someone in potentially a different language. She might have tried to learn a different language like June practicing her speaking or traveled with a partner or I don't know. I think all of these sort of very small mundane sounding things are different or very specific to being a woman. So yeah, it's it's a tricky situation. But as I said, I really think that there are two separate things happening. There's you know, identifying as a woman and being a filmmaker and a writer and then having a label because the label is problematic, I think, in the way that you don't see someone say, the new film by male director. So you shouldn't have to say it, the new film by female director. But that does happen. And I can see that being incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I can too. I think it would be super annoying to always be described as a woman director. But then, like you say, on the flip side, I think it is valuable to look at her films with a female feminist lens. I think, too, like her female characters are really interesting and there's probably a lot to say about them. And I don't know if it's worthwhile just talking about them a little bit, like talking about. So there are three in this film. There's June, who is the woman on her honeymoon. There's Corey, who is the woman who is suffering from this mysterious illness. And then there is Christelle, who is a maid in the hotel where June and Shane are staying. And she, from the very beginning, is more immersed in their story and their environment than you would expect her to be as a maid working in a hotel. And I thought you drew some some really interesting parallels between the women. Like you talked about how there were scenes of all of them bathing or cleaning themselves in some way and how Denis is like visually tying them together. What do you think, What? why do you think she is doing that or what do you think she is saying by doing that? I think the bathing scenes in particular to me were really interesting and I am 100% biased by my time in art history here, but scenes about bathing are very familiar to me. Uh, but they're also very intimate. Like at a basic level, 
everybody that you watches a film and sees a woman bathing, uh, they, they understand that this is generally, you know, a private time. It's a time that women aren't in public or on show. You know, they're not wearing makeup, but they don't have their hair done. You know, they're, they're just in their own space by themselves and they don't have to worry about being on display. Of course, we're there as foyers. We're not meant to be in these spaces. I think as well, it's really interesting the way that Denise so carefully shows us what bathing means to all these women. So it can be enjoyed. And this is what happens. June is in a hotel room. She discovers a, a bath, which is sort of disappearing luxury in a lot of our lives. And I really understand this idea of <laughs> the joy you discover at a, a hotel bath. But I think it's really difficult to really enjoy that feeling too much because we know that Christelle has been the one that's been, we see her scrubbing this bath, you're making sure it's clean. This is her job. And because her job is so intensive, she, she finishes and she goes down to this like really dark and dilapidated, I guess, hotel basement employee area, this row of standalone sinks. And she's like picking up her feet one at a time and washing and rubbing them under the running water, which in, you know, reminds us this running water of the tap running in the bath upstairs. So we know that for her, this is a very functional activity and it's, it's really awkward, but it's sort of this sense of desperately needing some sense of, of comfort. Comfort for her is very different than comfort for June. It reminds us of these the roles that they're playing here, employee and guest. Um, Corey, meanwhile, is being washed by her husband. So she's submitting to him washing her. She's lying down and he's cleaning this blood of her, of her, this act of love. And the scene where she is lying there covered in blood reminds us again that bathing is not just about enjoyment. It's definitely about cleanliness or purity or objection. So, you know, she's being washed off. This pollution is being removed. She's unclean. But the the idea of being unclean here is not just about the blood on her skin. It stands for something being very wrong in, in her and in this situation and in her body. And so this idea of cleaning, which recurs all the time, is never quite as obvious that it's about this idea of cleaning. But yeah, it just keeps repeating in a way that is kind of, I think, uncomfortable, which climaxes in this the final scene where Shane is hurriedly cleaning up. And I think this is where it becomes really clear that this, this idea of cleaning is about objection and something being slightly wrong. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting in the the class element of it all, like you say. And then another thing that I was thinking about as you were talking it's it's interesting like thinking about how Corey is she has this ailment where something is wrong with her and her husband is taking care of her but he is also preventing her from getting the thing she desires and then he's also maybe maybe responsible for her disease, like the film never quite makes it clear how she got infected or what the circumstances are around it. But it does seem like he is tied to it as it happened on this expedition that he was leading. And the other women also have men in their lives that are controlling them in some ways or at least present in their lives. Like, obviously, June is in Paris because Shane wanted to get to Paris. And even though they're on their honeymoon, he's not really giving her any time. And he's also not really telling her what is wrong with him either. He's not being transparent with her. 
And then I guess Christelle is, we don't really know. She has some man in her life who like picks her up on a motorcycle and takes her to work. But we don't really know what her life is like outside of the hotel. So it's a little hard to say with her. But I thought that was kind of interesting too, like that class level to the female characters and then also how they have men involved in their lives. I think it's also important to keep in mind that Christelle has Shane in her life, even just for a short period of time. So as we see very early on, she's the maid who's there to, uh, in theory, quietly and efficiently and invisibly clean the hotel room or make it ready for them when they arrive, that they get there early. So she comes down to take their bags up to their room and then there's this really hideously awkward scene where she's trying to make the bed so the room's clearly not ready. And Shane and June sit on the bed so she can't make it and then June kind of does something that I feel like maybe I would do which is super awkward which is just decides to help Christelle make the bed. And meanwhile Shane is just standing there staring at Christelle, like staring at Christelle. And she she can't be unaware that that is happening. And that kind of relationship with them, I think, builds a little bit. In the final scene, we see her in that that hotel room. She's just sitting on the bed. She just sits there and has a cigarette and then leaves. But I think what we don't really know for a little bit, or I guess we guess, but we hope it doesn't happen, is that she's kind of like this prey that once he spies her, once he's standing there and his you know, wife is helping her make this bed and he's not looking at his wife he's looking at her it's kind of like from that point he tracks her like literally like a, a animal stalking prey he basically follows her sent down to the locker room to to kill her and it's really upsetting because it does not seem fair that this is happening you know shane is it has obviously been trying to not give in to this feeling that corey has been obviously giving in to and he manages not to to give in with with June, which is another problem in itself. But yeah, Christelle is, is this character we don't know much about. But at the same time, I feel like I really understand her. She's so bored. You know, she obviously doesn't want to be a maid. She's just doing it. She licks wipes some of the products as she goes downstairs. She's just doing a job, turning up at dawn, you know, cleaning, going home. And we don't know what happens outside of that. But I think that the small you know, parts of her life that we see it's really relatable. I, I've got a quick question to throw in here with Shane. Why do you think he apparently knows, by the time that we meet Shane, he knows that he has a problem and he is going to try to find out maybe how to save himself? Why would he ever marry? Is it to maybe something to try to normalize his life? Yeah, you're right. We don't know that, but I think that normality is definitely a part of it. And I'm not sure if I included it in the book, but to me, this whole film nearly feels like a story that's between two stories. There's what happened on the trip to the jungle. And you can imagine, you know, I feel like once you've seen the film, the an entire film that's just about that trip to the jungle and or, you know, Corey getting this disease at the start. But there's also a film that I think the end really hints at, which is after this, which is, you know, June and Shane go back to America. She pretends to not know what's going on. And she becomes this wife that lives at home and provides an alibi as he becomes this 
a horrible serial killer in his own town, much like Corey has been doing in Paris. Ooh, that's interesting. That's another film I want to see. Denis would never make a um, prequel or sequel, oh. but I think that both of those films would be would be fascinating. Wow. Do you think that Jane will do that? Was that your feeling? I did. I, I couldn't really get a read on her at the end. I know at the very end of the film, he is washing the blood off of himself in the shower and she does see the blood splatter go down and just the look on her face I think it finally settles in of what he's capable of so I wondered is you know is she gonna bolt is she gonna turn him in but it does seem like that she may step in to the role of of being his enabler I actually I don't know what she's thinking in the last scene I think she is sort of thinking about what to do next I try to imagine what I would be doing at that point because it's pretty clear that if you're in that situation and you think you've worked it out and your husband is has just murdered someone, you're not really very safe to immediately confront him, right? Try and play along for, for a little bit. Maybe, I don't know, that's my kind of right. feeling. I feel like, again, she's a little bit like prey or potential prey. You know, she's playing it safe and if she thinks that he is a hunter if she thinks he is dangerous then she has to be careful and I think she knows that much at least right to say oh honey okay let's go and the minute we get back on American soil I've got to run to the store and then I'm yeah. gone um just never see me again yeah exactly. I've changed my name I'm gone yeah. <laughs> yeah I do think it's interesting though how Kate you say in the book like ending on that shot makes it it's like now it's June's story Whereas the whole film doesn't so much feel like her story, but that last shot of her looking, you feel like that is, like, what is what is going on? What is she thinking? Like that then becomes the story or the next part of the story or the unspoken part of the story. Like I think that's a really interesting way to kind of kick the ball back from Shane to June and give her not the final word, but the final look. Yeah, and I do think that June is, she plays a bigger role than it seems, or than maybe it seems the first time I watched this. I felt a little bit like she was sort of potentially just wedged in there as you know, part of the, the narrative. But after rewatching, I think she's really sensitively portrayed. And I really, I guess I really connect with, with her. I When she's on that flight to Paris, you know, she's going to the to Paris for her honeymoon she's drinking champagne she kind of just radiates this this joy and then when they arrive at the hotel and Shane looks out at her through the doors and she's kind of looking around she seems very naive and she's so gorgeous and she's got these giant eyes and the the, the, the pixie hair and she's just all like innocent gaze but she's not really innocent and she gets there and immediately realizes her husband is just not who she thought he was and he's disappearing and he seems kind of unhinged and you know and that escalates of course she does realize he's getting more dangerous but she does what I think a lot of us would do which is you know she goes through his stuff she tries to work out what's going on because he won't tell her and it seems like they've been married for like a handful of days got married jumped on a plane and then things go just downhill really quickly. So I do think that, yeah, she plays a bigger role than we than we initially think that she does. Yeah, I love that scene where she has, I think, like looked at Shane's 
search history or something, and she's found that woman who he used to rent a room in an apartment from or something. And she ends up meeting up with her kind of to try to dig and figure out like what's going on with Shane. Why is he talking to this person? Is he having an affair? And she's in her apartment talking to her and she just kind of falls asleep. And it's, I I love that scene because it's like, you kind of realize like, oh, this has been weighing on her. She has been stressed out about this for a while. And maybe is it like, she's relieved that it's not an affair. So at least that's one thing she can tick off her list to stop worrying about. And then she's, you know, calm enough to sleep. Like, I think that scene reveals some things about her or makes you think about her a little deeper about like, what is, what is going on with her? What is her side of this? And like, how is she interpreting what is happening? Yeah. I think the, the idea that she realizes it's not, an affair or not the affair she thought it was is is part of it but my reading of that scene and this could just be me was that I think she gets to this house and there's this woman that you used to rent to Shane and it, you know everything lines up and she's a little older and she's making her tea and she's being looked after and she feels safe she feels safe enough to sleep which is why when she goes home it's extra uncomfortable for me to watch this because it suggests she hasn't felt safe for a couple of days at least yeah that makes sense and i mean like her new husband is like fucking her and then going into the bathroom to come so like yeah she obviously knows like all right what is happening here this isn't normal but i but i think the way it's yeah the way the way it's portrayed or something I guess it kind of, for me, at least on like definitely my first watch or my second watch, took took me a while to read into what she was doing when he was going off the rails because I felt like we didn't get a ton from her in the moment. Like she still to me seemed a little mysterious of like how she was thinking about it. But you're right, like saying that if that's the first time she feels safe and she can finally sleep, that kind of that kind of puts a whole other layer to the movie or gives you something else to watch for when you rewatch like how how is june feeling what is her trajectory because i think you're right there is there is one and it's more than it initially seems well i can say one thing and i do believe kate you mentioned this in your book was her body her body was almost used as a guide to what was happening with shane because at one point Everything was great. And then he's like kissing her in the plane, almost like he's sniffing her like a, I don't know, almost a vampire expected him to like bite into her wrist. And then later on, you do see a bite mark on her. And then when she's asleep in that lady's apartment, you see like a bite mark on her lip. So I believe that as they were becoming more intimate, even though it didn't seem to me like they had consummated anything with intercourse, he was also becoming a little bit violent with her and leaving marks on her body. So it almost seemed to me like I was able to use a progression of his decline through her body trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Those bite marks, you're right, they they escalate. And I mean, part of the problem is, of course, that they could just be, they could just be innocent. It could just be part of, you know, their, their relationship. But we know that that is not what's happening because we see Corey and what happens with her horrible bites and then later we see Shane and we see what he really wanted to be 
to be doing, but she is marked by him. And yeah, I think the vampiric reference is, is really obvious in that early scene. And we do wonder, you know, if you hadn't known anything about the film, you'd definitely be thinking he's probably a vampire. You know, he's traveling at night and he's got that kind of like dark head, you know, look and that yeah the way that he like you said is sort of like leaning down to her wrist is so yeah intimate and uncomfortable yeah i mean he looks like vlad the impaler he does <laughs> i mean any drawing i've ever seen i'm like this is him this is this is vlad some of the reviews by reviewers that did not like the film definitely spoke about the way that gallo looked as being part of their problem with the film well i i mean i must say it's from my standpoint, he's not my type. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I'll be kind and say he's not my type, and we'll and go from there. Well, I wondered too because I, I mean, I know he is mired in controversy, but I did wonder, like, at the time when, and actually, so is Beatrice Dahl. So I kind of wondered at the time when this came out, would critics perception have been colored by those two figures like at the time in 2001 were they as controversial as i think of them being now i think so i think they've both become increasingly outspoken and again you know digital media means that this is all all living on forever rather than taking things from you know, print or one-off interviews gallo now and has had for quite a few years his own website where he sells his own sexual services and you can also buy his sperm apparently so you know that wasn't a thing in yeah (laughs) that wasn't a thing in 2002 but even back then he was he was definitely a known figure so he's been known since you know about the the 80s but he was part of the no wave community in new york uh he was friends with uh jean-michel basquiat so it's a pretty big deal he was in a band with him an experimental noise band. He also was in a Calvin Clyde ad with Kate Moss in the 90s. So, you know, he's, he was a recognizable face. I just, I don't think he was quite as ubiquitous as now. Uh, you can find a lot of horrible comments from him pretty easily if you just Google his his name. But I do think at the time that he was disliked by enough people that this would have colored their reaction to the film I just found a quote that I thought was (laughs) pretty fantastic from one of the reviews which is that even in the scene where he gets out of the shower he looks as if he could use a shower (laughs) (laughs) and so we were just talking about the shower and I thought yeah that that's pretty funny um someone else said he resembled a Nixon era drug dealer which is (laughs) you know you put that alongside the Vlad the Impaler (laughs) reference and um Yeah, you can tell the people were really not liking him at the time in this in this role. Uh, but he was in a, a lot of fairly well-received films. So he he was known, just not as known. Same with Dahl. She's been known for a long time since her very first role in Betty Blue, uh, which I think a lot of people um, saw. And then she became this this sex symbol basically and this actually sort of turns up in some of the reviews by people again didn't like the film and the strangest one I found was in the Guardian whether you said something about blood drips from her mouth and this is one of the three largest mouths in cinema today and I was just so shocked that that got printed yeah because that 
clearly has nothing to do with the film specifically because I, and I, I don't remember the others were, but he did. The, the reviewer went to, on to list the other biggest names in cinema. And I'm just what? like, no, that's not cool. Yeah, that is disgusting. Oh. It's hard to think about how like society was even more disgusting not that long ago <laughs> in certain ways. Oh, yeah. Or maybe just more more blatant in how disgusting it was. And more accepted. People just would hear comments like that and just accept it because it's always been that way. Yeah. Crazy. I'm, I'd be paraphrasing, but I'm sure there was also some kind of comment in at least one review where someone said something along the lines of, um, you know, Dal looks good enough to eat, which I understand ties into the cannibalism thing. But again, it's just a little bit too focused on her as this gorgeous woman and actor rather than the role that she's playing. Right. Well, I mean, should we talk about how Claire Denis uses her sexuality? I think both Beatrice Dahl's and Corey's in the film in response to her disease and in the way that she gets what she wants, which is to eat people. And we only see her attack men, right? We never see her attack a woman. It's always men. Yeah. I think we can assume it's men, but we're, you know, we're not sure that's all that we see on screen, though. I think Denis does want us to think about it. You think, uh, I don't know, the very first scene we see her on the side of the road and it looks maybe like she's you know, her car's broken down or something, but it clearly hasn't. And then all she does is go and walk on the side of the road and attract you know, the attention of a a truck driver. And she doesn't need to even say anything. There are these just looks back between the two of them. And she's clearly, you know, seducing him and she doesn't really need to do anything except just look at him. And that sense of looking is even more obvious in that scene where uh, her and Erwan are on either side of the boarded up door and you know, he's trying to get in, he's desperate to get in and he's like, literally ripping them down, <laughs> this teenage boy, ripping down boards that are nailed into a wall just with his hands. But she's not saying anything again. She's just sort of looking at him and then she kind of like lifts up her dress a little. But it's really just about them looking at each other for a good couple of minutes. And I think, yeah, her seduction here is definitely in her in her look. And she doesn't really speak at all in the film except for you know, a really, really sad moment where she says she's you know had enough, she's ready to die to her husband and he refuses, which again goes back to what you were saying, Lindsay, before about these women in this film will have men in their life, but Corey seems very controlled. And she should be under control, but maybe not just in a house, like <laughs> sort of locked away by her husband. She's clearly got you know, this biological is issue that's sort of, I think, what it really comes down to, that she's not really making this choice to, to go out and do this as much as she's driven to do it. And her husband is driven to cure her. And in the meantime, it's just literally burying the bodies for her as he works yeah it's interesting like he's he's trying to find a cure for her but until he can do that she is just relegated to this life in a single house often in a single room and it puts all it like puts all the onus on him to figure this out and all the onus on him to make the decisions for her but the only area, I guess, where you feel like she has agency is when she does go out and kill someone. 
It's her making a choice for herself and doing what she wants to do, even if it is a horrible thing. But we don't really ever get to see her do anything else for herself. And I know you can explain some of that away based on the disease, but it is it is like a really interesting way of confining her completely and making her one act of agency a really awful act. But I don't know, it kind of it kind of makes you see it in two ways because it is the only thing she ever gets to do for herself. So even if though it's horrible, you still are kind of like, well, at least she at least she got to get out and eat something today. <laughs> I found the men very controlling in this film. That's my sense of it. I feel like, first of all, her husband, I don't, I, I mean, I know he loved her, but I also thought maybe he was doing everything out of a sense of guilt or maybe even to cover up his own research to try to, because I don't know how many other people may be infected. I don't know if it's just these two people or if there's, you know, a whole bunch of these people out roaming around. So I I kind of know his motivations, but then I have to think that him forcing her to live this type of life and allowing this to go on, he's not in the best mental place either and has lost sight or never had sight of how to properly handle this. Of course, Shane, I feel like, controls his wife when she's trying to bathe. He's standing over her. He's kind of lurking over her. He follows women. The the creepy scene where he's behind the lady in the subway, like he's stalking her. And, and of course, stalking the maid. I just felt like there was a lot of maybe some issues coming up about control and these women not having any control. Yeah, I agree. Feeling... Like they have limited control is definitely part of the film. But I think, uh, like Lindsay said, it's also about how they try and exercise the control mm. that they have access to. You know, June, even though she's just been married a few days, goes through her husband's things, which I mentioned before, I just said offhand, you know, wouldn't we all do that? But I'm sure there are people that would not, not, you know, three days after being married, start going through the the luggage or the, the phone or the file facts. So I think that, that June is actually quite brave in that way. And then going to see the woman, you're calling her at four in the morning or something. You, It's clearly you know, just before dawn and then going to her house to confront her. Um, she's desperate, but there is agency there. And I think Corey's agency is most clearly seen you know, when she tells her husband as she's lying there getting washed, you know, submitting to that, that she she is ready to die, that she has had enough of this because we don't know how long they've been there either. It's been long enough for um, Leo to be thrown out of the scientific community and lose his job and move out into the suburbs, into this sort of falling down mansion to continue the research you know, on his own. So it's been, it's been a little time. We don't know how many people she's killed. We don't know if she started off quite so bad and has deteriorated. This is all things that we you need to, to decide for ourselves. But I do think that she she really shows her agency in that scene where she uses her voice, which she doesn't really very often in the film at all. She tells him what she wants and he ignores it. And she is able to finally kill herself with the fire. Am I correct in that? I do believe I am, that she is the one that strikes the match or gets that going that eventually, well, I know that Shane kills her, but that was her intent was to end what was going on. 
Yeah, because her husband wouldn't. So she takes that into her own hands after having painted the walls in blood, <laughs> which is epic. Mm-hmm. another whole, yeah, epic scene. <laughs> yeah, it's just through talking about this, it's like so interesting for me thinking about how you're right. It's a lot of the unknowns are what make this film so curious and what really lend to, I guess, like a personal interpretation because it's not only that we don't know the background of how this disease was contracted and how that all went down. We don't know that, but we don't know the timelines of a lot of things. Like like we've said, we don't know when June and Shane got married. We don't know if you know, he already knew he was infected. We don't know any of the details of any of this. And we just kind of have to like suss it out. And you get a lot of that, I think, through analyzing like how the shots are set up and whose point of view we're looking at and how people are gazing at each other and how they're gazing at the camera. And you could watch this film like 500 times. And I think you would still see new things that Denis is doing and Agnes Godard, her cinematographer, are doing to try to give you some clues to the unspoken without being overt about any of it. Yeah, this uh, film really takes to heart the advice a lot of filmmakers and writers for that matter are sort of given which is to show, don't tell. This film is all about the showing and there's very little telling. Yeah, and I think... I mean, as a filmmaker, I'm not a filmmaker, but if I was, I could see it being very, very hard to operate this way because you are leaving a lot of things, or you're, t- you're taking a lot of things out of your hands and you're putting it into the hands of the critics and the audience. And there is enough there for many different interpretations to make sense. And so in a way, it does feel like, well, what is what is Denis trying to say? What is she trying to say? But I don't get the sense that she is the type who really wants to exert control in that way. I'm sure she does have something that she initially wanted to communicate through this, but I don't feel like she's the type who cares if anyone knows or not. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that her approach to filmmaking is very similar to, I guess, a lot of people in especially like France, but like New Wave, 1960s directors which is definitely you make a film and people interpret it that's their role your role of the audience isn't just to I don't know watch it's to engage and to interpret it yourself like I think too with American cinema we're so used to not being in that position at all that I can see where if you were pretty much just used to watching more mainstream American films, and then you came to this, you would be like, what the fuck? I don't have any idea what's going on or how I'm supposed to feel. Or I could see that being really totally disorienting because it is like an extreme end of the spectrum. I think it absolutely shows you the power of this film. And you're right, Lindsay, as Americans, we are spoon-fed what we should like and expected sequence of events, the way that things should happen. There's really not much in a lot of traditional filmmaking left to the imagination. We're told what to think. When you're presented with a film like this, where you may be given clues, but you're also given the opportunity to figure this out for yourself and maybe to put your own ideas into it. A lot of people are just not used to that. And I could see why even even today, even though it is 
more accepted and there's a better reception of it, I can see why people would still, especially in America, still have some problems in in seeing it for the first time and may not quite get a grasp of exactly what's happening. Well, I know we are up on time. We could be here for days talking about this film, but I think we we covered a lot and maybe just as a as a wrap, Kate, what are some other films that you think people should watch if they are interested in trouble every day and if they are looking to put it into a larger context? What would you recommend? Great question. So I think uh, we've mentioned a few of them. Raw, Titan, In My Skin, uh, Cat People is definitely a reference for this film and an all-round amazing watch. It's one of my favorites. Poison is definitely another film that is very divisive, but I think worth watching alongside this. Uh, the addiction uh, as well is definitely very closely connected, um, as is Dressed to Kill. So these are like very different films. Um, I would also give another shout out to A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night because I think there's a lot of the same ideas about love and desire and I guess desire is, is something biological and then something more. Also, I think The Trouble Every Day really slots into kind of horror romance subgenre which is not anything I thought I'd be interested in but is actually pretty amazing um so aside from a girl works home alone at night there are uh, films like uh spring and after midnight and crimson peak and these are all good comparisons um to think about these ideas of love which we haven't spoken about that much but this film I think when it comes down to it is really about love and lust and the difference between the two and how that makes you feel about yourself and interact with others around you and then the world. Yeah, you're right. We really didn't touch on that, but that is totally, uh, yeah. I think if if you were to sum up this film in one sentence, that could for sure be one way to describe it. Yeah, desire as disease was my (laughs) running headline when I wrote this book. (laughs) Yeah. Well, everyone, if you are so inclined, and you should be because it's awesome, Kate's book is called Trouble Every Day, and it is for the Devil's Advocates book series. And actually, I recommend checking out that whole series. There are tons of different films that are covered in depth. I think you can find it a bunch of different places, but we will include a link in our show notes. And yeah, Kate, it was so nice having you on. I'm so glad we did this. And I feel like you you definitely gave Joe and I a lot more insight into this film. And I feel like after having read your book and talked to you, I have a better appreciation for it and a better understanding of some of the things that Denis was was doing. And yeah, it's just, I still wouldn't say I like it, but I would say I appreciate it more for sure. And I second that, Kate. Thank you so much. Like I said, your, your book and this film started me on the Duny journey, which I have not finished, but it has opened up an entire new world for me, and I am very appreciative. Thank you so much for such generous feedback um, and for reading and for having me on to discuss this film. Yes, of course. All right, everyone, thank you for listening. We will catch you on the next one.